Hi, Stephanie. Welcome to the Host Dispatch. Thanks so much for having me. We are so excited to talk to you and so excited about the forthcoming release of your chapbook, Survived By, An Atlas of Disappearance, which is our latest in the Host Publications Chapbook Prize series. Um, It is almost time for party season where we get to launch your book I think three times <laughs> this time it's going to be it's going to be awesome. I'm super excited. Yeah, we we feel so privileged that we get to celebrate Survive By here in Austin. Um we'll be at AW Kansas City um and I believe we're also going to plot a virtual launch um because Stephanie you have like such an international <laughs> audience your pre-orders have been placed for Australia I believe France and yeah there's definitely been a request to have survived by um shipped internationally and so we will also be offering survived by as a digital purchase for all of your fans and all of your friends (laughs) that are across the globe that's so funny I know who that, I know who the France order was. <laughs> um, yeah. And I, I wanted to say thank you for making that possible and making the international shipping much more affordable. Cause I knew that first of all, the collection discusses Australia. And so I wanted it to be accessible to people in Australia. Um, and like I had maybe sort of hoped a lot of my friends who I met through poetry when I was abroad ordered the collection and supported it. So I'm excited to see that it's going to be all around the world. Yes. Yeah, that's definitely something we hadn't encountered much until now. So it's always fun as a small press and a, and a tag team of two to have like a new challenge that now we now we know how to do that stuff a little bit better. So it was a fun little challenge to figure out. Um, and just it's very exciting for us here in Austin, Texas, to be sending out orders that are going to be going halfway across the world. It's pretty it's pretty incredible to think about your chapbook that we helped bring into the world, you know, traveling that far. Um, But yeah, let's talk about the chapbook. Are we ready for that? Let's do it. Okay. So I would love to hear y'all talk about the process of making the cover. Um, It is stunning. And for the listener at home, it has a white background that has a little bit of texture to it and a beautiful dark blue nautilus shell it has a kind of minimalist vibe to it and the back cover looks completely different i'll let you all describe it but watching the two of you kind of come to this was really exciting um do you guys mind talking a little bit about that process you want to kick it off on i feel like it's really your work and your labor yeah so for those who have listened to some of the previous episodes about how we approach cover design um, here at Host Publications, you'll know that I I consider it a very collaborative process. And I always ask our authors for a mood board um, for some direction so that I don't have to completely start from scratch. But the goal is always to have the author's aesthetic, just the inner world of their language and who they are, come together with the work itself. And this was a a really fun journey because Stephanie provided what it was essentially two mood boards for two very 
different moods. And I think that we, it felt like at the 11th hour, brought them both together. And that was a really fun journey. The whole time I was like, how is this? We were doing these series of mock-ups. And at the end, I still had two very different options. And they came together really beautifully. But Stephanie provided me with a very minimalist, earthy, grounded map-like mood board, and then a vibrant uh, risograph-inspired, like, screen printing, a little bit rougher, um, that had a lot of, like, vibrant, bright colors. And that was really fun to explore both options separately and then for the final product to come together in harmony and still feel like it captures Stephanie's aesthetic and the work really beautifully. Yeah, the the journey towards the cover was really, you're right about the 11th hour. It's amazing how the two sort of aesthetics came together at the end. Um, and my intention with the two mood boards was never for it to be a, we need both. It was supposed to be like, these are two wildly different directions we could go. So I'm really odd at the way that you managed to make them mm. feel harmonious and actually coexist with each other in the final cover. Um, the sort of earthy map inspired aesthetic was meant to be sort of like what my mind goes to when I think Atlas a little bit more um, maybe gallery-like or it's like something you might see in a museum, something vaguely evocative of those Victorian posters of species, which is what I feel like the cover does now. And then the second aesthetic was almost like a reaction to that or a resistance to that. Like, let's go as many colors as we can. Let's be really surreal. Let's not try to be true to reality. Um, And I feel like the final cover is the back cover, that sort of dreamscape of the greens and the blues, it doesn't feel like it's of a totally different world from the front, but it feels like those two emotions of studying this chambered nautilus or whatever the species is, and then going into like the world that that species brings you into can actually exist in harmony. And yeah, I really love how it works. Mm, That's a really good point about the way the front and back covers each Um, point in different directions in terms of scope. I really love that because that's definitely something that happens in the poems as we will soon discuss. (laughs) And it's, it's beautiful. I think with every book that we do, I'm like, this is the most beautiful since. Um, And it really does feel just so special to hold it and for it to be an introduction or the the beginning of this journey of reading survived by. Um, And Stephanie, I know you haven't received your copies yet. You will very soon. And I'm just really excited for you to see it in person and to hold it, which I know you mentioned you had a dream that it was strangely thick. And, (laughs) you know, it feels it's heavy. It's pretty thick. I remember saying that it was thick the way a foreign language dictionary was thick. Like it had almost this onion skin, like Bible pages. And for some reason I was in a field of snow. But yeah, this is the first time I'm seeing you, like the chapbook, I guess, over screen. It looks amazing. Like the blue really pops. It's so beautiful. Yeah, the colors are so perfect. It's really vibrant. And then the fly sheets. I don't think I mentioned to you that the fly sheet... um, we only had one option, but it's a vellum, which I thought was just so beautiful. It's something that you might come across 
in an atlas, um, this kind of like transparent onion skin type of paper. And it's like they only had the thickest vellum of all time available. Um, So it is like hefty and just like beautiful and luxe. So yeah. Oh my gosh, that looks really cool. <laughs> it looks really cool. Hearing you talk about art and also about atlases and maps and just knowing from talking to you, but also right off the bat from reading your manuscript, I know that you are also so passionate about conservation and also history. I think of you as a scholar poet. I don't know if you think of yourself that way, um, but I'm interested by all of these different worlds that you are interested in, Stephanie, and the way that you bring that into your poetry. And so what I really wanted to ask you to start off talking about the book is, was poetry your first love or did you come to it by way of another passion or another project? Oh, that's a great question. Poetry is definitely my first love. Um, I feel like it is the love that has brought me to all these other things or is like a lens through which I can make sense of history, ecology, conservation, all the things you mentioned. Um, I think poetry was something I started writing maybe when I was eight or nine, like when I was a kid. And throughout like middle and high school, it felt like one of the few things that couldn't measurably help me get into college. I feel like this is maybe a bit of a cliche, but um, it, it was like not something that could necessarily, you know, go on my resume or be measurable by this like sort of professionalism that you're taught as a grade school kid about getting into college. Um, And so it felt like totally my own. And so I think poetry is where I had a lot of fun, where I felt like there were no rules, um, where I could express myself in a way that wouldn't be judged Mm. or like consumed by the outside world. And I think that's what poetry has been to me for a long time and in many ways still is. Um, And I feel like the latest iteration of poetry being my own and being a way to play is me introducing more visuals like with this chapbook, um, introducing and trying to understand more worlds outside of just my own senses and my own information and engaging with archives, engaging with research. But yeah, I think that's that feels like the latest version of me playing through language. Wow, that was such a beautifully worded answer. Um, I do want to follow up just from the beginning of what you said to make sure I understand it, did poetry lead you to a lot of this research that, that you've done? Um, was poetry the thing that kind of brought you to some of these other passions that you have? Not directly. For Christmas Island, I feel like me going there for the first time was a confluence of many forces. I think I just, I was just curious about the place. I had a unique opportunity to apply to this scholarship called the Beagle 2 that was at my university. And it was named after the ship that Charles Darwin sailed on when he was in his 20s. And the whole idea of the scholarship is that it's beneficial to have a journey of intellectual discovery Mm. as a young person. And so there was funding available for these proposed journeys. That seemed like, like unbelievable to me. And I was like, I have to apply. It, It doesn't, it felt like it didn't really matter where I go. I just need to pick someplace that's like I would never be able to go to otherwise and find my way there. And for a number of reasons, it was Christmas Island. Um, Yeah, so I think that's how I ended up there. And that's where my fascination with particularly these species that I write about and with extinction and extinction in the wild um, Mm. really began. 
Yeah. So you brought poetry with you, though, everywhere you went. Yes, definitely. I also want to just mention (laughs) a couple of fun things here Um, is that we loved Survive by the manuscript that we received as a submission so much that we broke pretty much every personal rule that we had, which was, you know, Claire, Claire was like, we got to do this. We got to do this manuscript. And I was like, (laughs) yes, but do you want to lay out these images? This is gonna, this is gonna drive you. And Claire was like, yes, yes, yes. Um, And I was like, don't, don't complain when when we've got to do it. And there's no complaining. And the other rule was, um, you know, we've set some boundaries over the years uh, as very passionate workaholics. And I was like, okay, four o'clock, five o'clock, we got to, we got to shut things down. No evening meetings, no super early meetings. We've got to set some boundaries. And, you know, Stephanie, you were on Christmas Island for the entire production of Survived By, which for our listeners, that's about a, is it 14 hour difference from the U.S. central time or so? And and so I was like, Claire, if we do this, we're going to be taking really early or really late meetings. And, and we just loved the manuscript so much that we, we were like, let's, let's really just push our own personal boundaries and explore what the chapbook can do. And yeah, we were like, this is going to be, you know, every book we've ever done has had its own lesson and own challenges. Um, but most of the time, we don't find that out until the end or so. Um, this one, we were like, okay, we are committed. This is such an incredible and just so different manuscript mm-hmm. that is still in conversation and in harmony with our other chapbook prize winners. We just feel so lucky to have worked with you. It was totally worth it. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I feel so honored for you to be saying this and honoring for all of the work that I know you two put into it. I know the time zone was challenging. I know the manuscript was challenging. Um, I feel like I learned so much from the editorial process and from the layout process working with both of you. And so I'm grateful for the sacrifices that you did make to make this book happen. They were easy sacrifices. But yeah, it, it is our honor um, and such a joy and such a pleasure. And now we get to celebrate it. But I did just want to mention that for our listeners. Um now that we're talking about Christmas Island and, and yeah, I think it's, it's really beautiful that you finished this manuscript um, and all of the editing during your time there. Yeah, it definitely was fortuitous to be there at the time that this manuscript was being polished because the, the poems about the island that appear in the manuscript are from when I was, I visited in 2018. So it was five years ago. Um, So being back on the island, like I did so much of my looking through the final edits like under the same trees that I was under when I first discovered the island for the first time not discovered but when I first visited it um when it first entered my life so yeah Mm -hmm. it was it felt a bit like a full circle moment yeah really when you think about the timing of it that was really really fortunate um really lucky and it it blends so well with not just the fact that the book has so much Christmas Island in it, but also the fact that it, the subtitle is 
an atlas of disappearance and that it engages with the idea of maps through visual imagery of maps in such an interesting way. And I was curious if if you could talk about that a little bit, Stephanie, in addition for the listener, in addition to the map images that do relate to the setting of some of the poems, um, how else do you maybe see this chapbook engaging with the idea of of an atlas? Yeah, definitely. I think this idea is something that's formed during the editorial process and actually was influenced by something you said, Claire, and how I think I brought up this idea of atlasifying the book and making it more visually like an atlas or making these sort of like visual or formatting changes to resemble what traditional atlases do. And you mentioned that the poems are already sort of engaging with place in the same way an atlas does. And so you don't necessarily need the visuals to convince the readers that that's happening because it just is. I think that was a helpful revelation for me to be like, yeah, the thing I really cared about is giving readers the sense of place. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think the atlas part of it is how atlases are often like a portrait of a specific place, which they do through maps, they do through text, but it's almost like a series of portraits of different places that are all connected by a geographical landmass or by a conceit like an atlas of islands. Um, And I think a poem can do that in the same way by just engaging deeply with place and being committed to that engagement throughout whatever binds those Mm -hmm. poems together. Yeah, I love that. I love being able to refract the idea of what an atlas is or can do and what it means for a poetry collection to be an atlas of sorts. Um, It does give you so many more layers, I think, because all poems deal with place in a way, even if that place is really small and specific uh, and not something that a map would be relevant to. But the way that these poems engage with place or are infused with place feels really specific to you, you, your writing style in this book and the the project of this book. It feels like it's taking a very familiar concept for poetry and bringing it into a whole new light um, for me as a reader, which, yeah, I really loved thinking about these as as many atlases, each each individual poem. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I think I also love when individual poems or collections use naming as almost a speech act to to make yes. a claim about what it is you're reading, even if the thing itself doesn't obviously look like that thing, like poems that are recipes or poems that are how-tos. Um, and then when it's not obvious how it is that thing, it forces you to ask, okay, then what, it, what do I think a recipe or a how-to or an atlas is? And why why doesn't this quite match? Um, So I think that's something that excited me about first putting the title Atlas into this manuscript and being like, well, it isn't really a traditional Atlas, but something about it feels like one. And so what would happen if I called it this and what what tensions would it introduce between the poems and that idea? Yeah. Did that subtitle come about after you had written most of the poems, all of the poems, or was it pretty early on? I think it was towards the beginning. I think I I wanted to collect many of the poems that included maps and so I think I had this idea of an atlas um, but then filling in the spaces between to make something that was a cohesive collection but still felt true to the title uh yeah I think that happened at the same time that I had atlas in the subtitle so it was towards the beginning it was something that I, I wanted to play around with yeah more of a guiding guiding concept yeah definitely yeah um working at a bookstore and being extremely passionate and obsessive about poetry and personally 
as a genre within the realm of poetry, loving eco-poetics, um, I had not come across the usage of maps to the extent and the depth at which we come across in Survived By. Um, I think that when I was inputting the maps, I had asked you pretty early on, kind of like, where did this map come from? And um, and I think you were like, I scanned this book and it's a, an image from a book that I had. And I just loved how like there was this human intensity almost that like, I don't want to say like a feral or like a, <laughs> there's like a little bit of an animal there mm. where the map scanning was a little imperfect and there was this hastiness and this imperfection to the cutting of the paper and the taping and a little bit of inconsistency um, with like some of the font or like the all caps or lowercase. Like, I just love that there was this like energy of swiftness and urgency to a couple of the poems that are maps. And I just, I would love to hear about like, where did that come about how did you like see a map and think there's a poem in this image um yeah where was the birth of that idea I, I think you mentioned earlier that um curiosity like seems to be kind of at the forefront of a lot of your work and personal exploration um and so I sense maybe there was some of that but I would just love to hear about your journey with um, integrating poetry and image and map. Yeah, thanks for asking that. You mentioned the sense of personal exploration and with the visual poems, they were something I was, that was very new to me and felt like in addition to my practice in a form of experimentation. And so that's why with most of the maps, there are multiples. I had this feeling that if I just did one and then called it done, I wouldn't have fully learned everything that you know this mode of working had to teach me. So for the maps of Christmas Island, for example, there's three, I think there were maybe initially four, but like three that made it into the book. And I had, it was almost like, I need to just do this three times before I know what it's really about, at least. Um, and the same was true for the, the colorful poems with slips of paper on them that I think you're alluding to with the energy of swiftness. Um, with those physical collages, it started actually with the language that I placed onto the map. I think the origin of this was visiting the Shell Hall in the American Museum of Natural History. It actually is a display very similar kind of to the cover of this book where it's this like blue wall and then individual shells sort of like pinned onto the wall and just the name of the species. And they're all shells that are found along the East Coast of the US. And the names, I think the names just like do something to my imagination that feels like it it, it just is so evocative, like angel wing as the name of a shell that looks like angel wings, um, waved astart, uh, jackknife clam, like these like super sensual, superhuman names in this very scientific setting, I think just like always kind of sets me off. So in this specific case, it was those shells. And I think I had recently read an interview that Victoria Chang did with poets and writers about um, writing Dear Memory. And she wrote about being creatively stuck and trying to engage with these images from a personal archive and having a friend encourage her to sort of place slips of paper on top of the image without gluing them down, without fastening them. And she particularly was drawn to the way that these slips of paper 
cast their own shadows and you could tell that they weren't fixed and that they were almost like a breath could blow them away Mm. Um, so that was an idea that was in my head at the time I saw these shells so that's why the first iteration of those maps had these slips of paper that were literally just placed on top of the map almost like a floral arrangement or something rather than a collage with glue and tape wow I I love the reference to dear memory and that sort of kinship that your book has with that work and the idea of those slips of paper not really being adhered to the collage and that they really could just be blown away by a breath is definitely resonating with the ideas behind like why have a list of all these mushroom species on a map right and and the ecological ramifications of of just those words on that page um also being so fragile and and momentary that's a really beautiful connection yeah i yeah, definitely the fragileness. I think it appeals to me both in a practical sense and in an artistic sense. I like that the image is so mutable and I can try many orientations and like experiment much more quickly, much more easily. And then placing them onto a, a map that's typically named, um, a, a similar thing that sort of sets my imagination going is place names and the way they're sort of wrapped up in the geography of a place, the history of a place, people's names, um, landmarks, and trying to put two things that are named in similar ways, but are also really different species names and place names in conversation. That's the, I think that's the tension that interested me and made me want to mm-hmm. label a map of places with shell names as if I was labeling landmarks or places. Wow. Well, I couldn't have asked for a more perfect answer that has opened my brain and imagination up. Um, I will definitely, I'm such a like, Every city I go to, I want to go to their like natural science museums. And so I'm really familiar with that wall of shells with the names attached to them. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes like they're bugs or butterflies or beetles. Um, and it had never occurred to me to link that with poetry. And so now I feel like I'm going to go into the museum and like look for poetry on the wall <laughs> and and engage with survived by and engage with dear memory. Well, I think that our audience at this point might like to hear a poem by you now that we've primed them with some background and some atmosphere. Is there a poem you'd like to read? I sort of feel like I should read one of the math ones. Totally. Okay, I'll read A Guide to What Lives Between Land and Sea because that's one of the first visual poems. Okay. A Guide to What Lives Between Land and Sea. Periwinkle. The science tells us Greenland is losing 200 gigatons of ice each year. Limpet. 200 gigatons is 200 earthfuls of cars. Every car on the planet frozen and dropped into the sea. Rock lass. Imagine the world's cars frozen and falling. The wide skirt of the interstate empties like an ice tray into the sea free of gleaming land rovers with knife-carved tire treads melting. Frozen jeeps riot from every spiraling parking garage. Hondas pour from freeway dealerships and collide until the air shines with cold. Buckshot barnacle. The science tells us we're fucked. Chitin. As a child, I loved digging for clams during family beach trips, racing the tunneling tongues after each wave plunging a hand in the mud to pull up the ones too slow to escape. 
My wrists anchored in the salt water. My fists kept the earth safe. Muscle. Bivalve comes from bi, to, and valve, leaves of a door. A place to enter or disappear from. Goose barnacle. Two balloons are watching the burial plots flood with the same sea that turns food pits to salt ponds. No burials before high tide. Everyone knows that now. Acorn barnacle. Do you pull the dead out of their graves to safety? Do you leave them to the sea? Aggregate anemone. The clams have disappeared in search of cooler waters. Empty mud in my hands. Sea palm. Any door asks whether the passer is in or out. Any anchor asks where one would like to remain. The open sea, the safety of a bay. Brittle star. Slow-moving sea stars survive tide pools by anchoring to safety so strongly that their arms are frequently torn from their bodies. When this happens, sea stars grow a new arm. Sea hair. The lost arm can also grow a new sea star. One wound becomes two bodies. Sea urchin. Done digging for clams, I reach for the door of our unfrozen car. Inside, my family waits for me to enter. Yay. Thank you so much. I really love the way that that poem ends. Um, yeah, you do have these place-focused poems, but I also feel like I sense you and your relationship to your family throughout the manuscript. Like it feels like this really beautiful balance of childhood and nostalgia and there's also place and places and memories that you make with your family in certain places um, that we see throughout throughout the book um, that really personally grounds me that I that I really love. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think the this poem is one actually that transformed so much through the editorial process. So Claire, thank you for your guiding wisdom. I, I feel like it transformed and became a new poem and I'm, I'm really happy with um I think that element of family was actually kind of missing from the first iteration and in a way it's sort of an attempt at the start of the collection to do what I feel like many of these poems are trying to do which is to understand the scale and scope of what's happening to our climate of like ecological crisis in a way that is personal when when that is actually impossible like when it's a scale that's not human but we are human. And so we have to sort of translate, you know, tons of ice into something that makes sense, like cars. And even that sort of doesn't make sense. It's sort of overwhelming. And I find that doing that translation, often the thing that feels most real and most easy to understand to me is my family. It's memories I have of childhood and being at the beach and the rising tide to me takes place um, in Panama City Beach, where I went every summer as a kid. So I think that's, that's why family appears so much throughout this collection, even though it is a book of poems about the environment. I think for me, they're impossible to write about separately. Mm. Listening to you read this for the first time and having taken a step back, right? We, we finished editorial quite a while ago um, and I was working on layout where you don't really read the poems as much. And uh, yeah, so many of these numbered lines felt really brand new to me. And hearing you read it, 
it really struck me how the list poem, which is what kind of poem this is, uh, it's a list poem where the text corresponds to numbered species on a map, for those who can't see what I'm seeing. And it feels so perfect. And that addition of the family element feels so perfect, too, because a list poem has the ability to really be fractured or um, fragmented, even in terms of what each item on the list is referring to. It's like they have this automatic cohesion. And so you can go in so many different directions at once and it all still feels um, of a kind and there's no hierarchy to a list things get to just exist together like all these creatures in the tide pool um, and it feels so perfect to me to have have that um, family element or like Anar was saying that almost childhood nostalgia element brought into this it doesn't feel out of place I think the list really helps it all hold itself together but it's wonderful too that it's tenuous like that idea of anchoring that the poem develops and evolves towards the end um the sea star with its arm getting ripped off for example um or the possibilities of a boat being taken out to sea or anchored at the shore like there's this very precarious the precariousness of the idea of anchoring here which really mirrors so beautifully with memory and the way that that gets sort of washed in and out of our brains and how it relates seems to always relate to what we're experiencing now in the moment I guess I don't know what I'm saying but I feel like what all of those things feel sort of complex to me and bringing them together in a numbered list is such a genius move and having that little map that adds a, a yet another layer ecological layer to it um it really holds itself together really well. Yeah, I think that's an, that's such a great observation about the list poem is that it does often what poetry is doing in a sort of oblique way, which is put possibly unrelated things next to each other. Um, but they are, they're fundamentally related because they belong in the same list. Yes. And in this case, the thing that binds all of them is this diagram of these type of species. Um, and I actually found that this one backbone really helpful in the process of revising and how to sort of crack open the poem, introduce new characters, like what actually needed to be introduced. And the reason the species name is in each line is because there are times when I let, similar to the shells actually, like the name of the species itself and the poetry of that name guide me. For example, with the brittle star, um, that line about the sea star came because I was like, well, actually I should just learn a little bit more about how brittle stars work and why they're called brittle. And the idea of brittleness resonated with me. And so I did some research into how you know, the the arm can grow a sea star the same way the sea star can grow a new arm and it actually just duplicates itself through this uh, process of injury. Um, yeah, and so following actually the words and the names and what these items do share helped me bring in things that were even more different and hold them together in the poem. Wow, I love that. This poem really is so complex in ways that I, I feel like, I feel like the mark of a good poem is that I can reread it a hundred times and it's rereadable again and I'm always surprised by something or learning something anew and I feel that so strongly in this poem um yeah I love that the the names of the species themselves guided you and I definitely want to talk more about what you've kind of you've kind of gone there a little but I would really love to go there of like using 
language almost as a different element. Like it is not just being used as a way to convey information. Obviously, this is poetry, but it's being used if we think of language and poetry as like a paint palette, like you're using a different kind of paint or something. Um, How are you thinking about like species names, for example, since that does come up in other poems? Yeah. How are you thinking about about those species names? Yeah, I think the thing that draws me to using them in poetry is this sort of sensual element of species name and the sensuality that feels almost unavoidable and sort of at odds with their role in a scientific representation. Like these are the same words that uh, marine biologists will be using, the same words that appear in the research papers that I cite. And because we are humans and we have to experience the species through our senses, we'll call the blue-tailed skink the blue-tailed skink, or we'll call this barnacle that looks like a little nut the acorn barnacle. And I think it's like this beautiful like human translation that can't be avoided. Mm-hmm. And it feels almost like catching glimmers of poetry in the midst of science. And so I feel like pulling out things from the scientific world that are so beautiful and, and so sensual and pointing to that and calling attention to it is a fun act of pointing out like the inevitable humanness in mm-hmm. scientific work. Yeah. Cause theoretically a scientist most likely was responsible for each of these names, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's something that I sort of wonder about more explicitly in um, the poem, the ocean in miniature. Like, was the scientist who named these deep sea creatures hungry? There's the cookie cutter shark, the spaghetti worm. (laughs) They're just so human. And it's fun to think about the humanity behind the language that we have for science and for our world. Mm. I love that. Thank you so much for reading that poem and discussing it with us, Stephanie. That was really, really wonderful. Yeah, Um, it was my pleasure. I can't tell you how surprising the poem was to me after all these times of reading it. I love I love it when that happens. Um so you know, I personally just speaking, I studied English writing and journalism in undergraduate school and the the thing that my professors would say was they were like you you need another another minor. You need another thing because uh, you can't just know how to write. Um, and the advice that I never took, of course, was they were like, the science, the sciences, they don't know how to write. <laughs> it's all terrible. Um, you could really change the world if you marry writing and science. Um, and so didn't take that advice. Um, paying the price for it now. Uh, <laughs> no. Um, but uh, what do scientific practices have in common with poetic practices? And if you find that there's any overlap between the way a scientist considers the world and the way that a poet does? Oh, that's such a beautiful question. I should qualify by saying that I'm not a practicing scientist. I find... I in my bio actually I wrote ecology enthusiast mm. to you know distinctly <laughs> clarify that I'm an appreciator of and lover of the sciences but not one myself so what I say comes from that perspective um I think maybe the thing that the thing that I do see in both and sparks something in me when I see them in both is the times when both require a leap of imagination and I think 
in science, this can be a tricky thing. I actually find this to be true of humanities as well, like especially history, archaeology, even anthropology. But there is a sense in which the data that you can actually gather yourself only goes so far. And at some point, leaping to knowledge or creating something new has a gap that is like unbridgeable. Um, I think the scientific method is meant to resist this idea and provide a means for us to bridge that without having to leap. Um, but oftentimes there just is that gap and that chasm. And I think poetry so often works on these imaginative leaps of moving you beyond the logic of the world, or like we talked about earlier, putting things that are unrelated side by side and thereby relating them because they exist in the same poem. Um, mm. And already talked about the importance of writing about science with like a sort of poetic lens. I've been re referred to the paper, um, What It's Like to Be a Bat by Thomas Neagle. And it's sort of like a cognitive science, natural science paper about theory of mind and how there is at the end of the day, like a limit to how we can know that, right? We, we can gather data about how the bat perceives, like how its ears work, how its eyes work, but that cohesive picture of what it is like to be a bat is not something that we can create at this point, except with imagination. That sort of limit of like, where does language end? Where does data end? That's what I find to be most exciting about both science and uh, poetry. Could not have imagined a more beautiful answer to that um, that really gets gets me excited to write. <laughs> it, totally. And as as you were as you were speaking, I, I was thinking about this book that I'm reading that I highly recommend to my listeners, but also to you, Stephanie, if you haven't read it yet, um, you can borrow it when you come to Austin. But it's called Indeterminate Inflorescence by the Korean poet Lee Song Bok. Mm. And he writes they're little lectures on poetry, but they're they're very like short paragraphs. So lecture is is kind of a a strong word to use for them, but really fun ruminations on poetry. And one of the things I was reading about in that book in the last couple of days was how, according to his sort of poetic theology, um, poetry is always seeking to like explore the unknown, which is an idea that I really like as well and could have a lot of different practical applications, I think, in poetry and it could could refer to a lot of different kinds of poetry. I think that's a wonderful way to think about like the spirit of what poetry is trying to do. But I also feel like that resonates very strongly with scientific practices of maybe their bent is a little bit more focused on making the unknown known. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know that I would say that's what poetry is doing too, but that sort of space of unfamiliarity, like the gap between the two disparate things, like it's not just putting them together, but like, what is that line that connects them look like or that empty space maybe um that feels like where your mind is going in poetry but definitely in science um, yeah definitely I love that I feel like it's almost this exploration of negative space like okay outside of what I know and outside of what we as a world know what is there yes. and what could there be and I feel like this sense of mystery and decreased sense of self and like increased wonder at the world is often how I feel after I read a really amazing poem. Mm. Um, so I think there is something there about exploring this space of this gap of knowledge mm -hmm. and um, how it feels to be in that space. Yeah. And I think poets can all do it 
in totally different ways. You can do it by tunneling into what you do know. And yeah. like you zoom far enough in and things become strange. I think your book shows us that to a degree and the way that you play with scope and you zoom out far enough and things become unrecognizable too. Um, I really, really feel like poetry and, and science have a lot in common. So I think that's one of the reasons why your book resonated with me so much. Yeah, I love that idea about scale. I appreciate that. All right, y'all. Do we feel like another poem? I would love to hear another poem. I'm happy to read The Ocean in Miniature because we talked about the hungry scientists and scale, actually, which I feel like this poem deals with. Yeah, that was going to be my request, actually. Ah, amazing. All right. Funnily enough, this also was inspired by the American Museum of Natural History and their dioramas in the floor of the whale room, which is such a beautiful space. This is The Ocean in Miniature. By the time we reach the deep sea exhibit, the bodies are so strange that they remind me of nothing until I see the names. Cookie cutter shark, spaghetti worm, moon jelly. What somersaulting tongues hungrily christened this sea? Of course, marine worms look like pasta heaped on the ocean floor. My favorites are chicken liver sponge and blood belly jelly. I hold the names like ripe fruit in my mouth. My mind turns easily to the seabed where hagfish slide between whale ribs, ensuring no death is wasted. What enables me to enter this dream is not just the thrill of the unfamiliar, although I love this too. A bit like the vertigo of watching snow and imagining myself in a shaken globe, the sudden snap of scale rendered legible. Here, the vastness of a word like depth or death or knowing becomes full sponge comb jelly, things that fit in my palm. I want the world like this, suspended, rendered by God or a scientist into something made for my hands, my human tongue. Beautiful. I think that's one of my favorite poems in your book, Stephanie. Thanks. I can, I feel like I could tell through the process of editing as it began to encompass more of the concerns of the book. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm really happy with how it ended up. Um, and yeah, just for the listener, our species names in this poem are italicized, so they kind of lift themselves in my mind from the rest of the language around them, kind of like how I imagine the scene that's being set with these specimens would that be the right word for this what what would be found in the museum stephanie yeah this specifically was about the dioramas of what these environments would look like so it's like a diorama mm -hmm. of the deep sea creatures and then little labels beneath each model of the creature yeah so it's almost like the labels really sort of like lifting themselves out of the diorama scene to announce the, yeah, like you were saying earlier, the language that we we use to sort of translate this creature to give it some sort of language that we can hold on to. And I feel like that's the concern, one of the concerns of the poem. This, um, this act of labeling and the lifting out. And the translation of it. Yeah, definitely. And this is a similar example as um, the other poem I read of the sort of unavoidable humanness of these names. And I felt a similar way when looking at these dioramas with cookie cutter sharks, spaghetti worm, as I did looking at the shell hole and trying to comprehend in some ways the range of like types of existence there are and just how the physics of deep sea creatures in particular and their existence, like um, the amount of pressure, the 
the scale of how much we don't know what the bottom of the ocean actually looks like, those are things that all feel a little bit beyond comprehension. And so in, in this case, reading these names actually like made them suddenly so understandable, like chicken liver sponge. I can imagine what that might look like. Um, yeah, cookie cutter shark, bowl sponge, comb jelly. And it's, I guess, expressing a sort of like wonder and appreciation at the work that these names are doing of making the scale mm. legible to me. There is definitely, I think, a sense of wonder in the naming, especially certain names here. And it's almost childlike in a way that is really touching to me. Uh, blood belly jelly. <laughs> it's kind of gross, but it's cute. <laughs> it's like weirdly cute. Um, yeah, you selected really, by the way, just great, great selection of the names themselves. Because I know that there were probably just a ton that you could have chosen from for this poem. And the way that these kind of build on each other and create that sense of wonder is really magical. Yeah, it felt like it wasn't hard to pick memorable names. And this is making me wonder, actually, if the memorable and super sensual names being in the deep sea exhibit is no accident because it's a place where we know so little and our knowledge sort of ends because of how hard it is to visit or to, you know, collect data from the deep sea zone because it's sort of like outer space on earth mm. and we're just beginning to understand it. The names that we have are like the first name you would give a new place, the first name you would give something that you're, you're finding and trying to find language for for the first time. Whereas our language for like squirrels and pine trees is super abundant and can be very precise because we know so much. I wonder if because we actually know so little, our names are like the name has to do more work and it has to tell you what it's shaped like, how it might move just because we have no other. Yeah, we, we don't have enough information yet. So the names are like these imaginative leaps. I love that theory. Yeah, that feels right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Stephanie, my imagination is is exploding. Um, my curiosity <laughs> is is expanding. So ocean in miniature, you're referring to a diorama. There's a couple of pieces in here, and there's been a couple of times in this episode where you've mentioned um, being in a museum. So what is it like to go to a museum with you? You're taking these in. You're experiencing a museum through the lens of a poet. <laughs> Are you jotting down things that you're like, hmm, that's interesting. Are you taking pictures? Are you the kind of person that stands in front of one piece for longer than the people you're there with and you have to catch up with them later? Like, what is what is your journey in a museum like? This is a great question. I feel like I try to be a considerate museum guest when I'm going with other people. But if I were to go alone, I would absolutely spend a lot of time standing in front of the exhibits that really set me off and recording the ways that they're making me feel. Um, typically, I think with the Museum of Natural History, for example, museums in general set me off. It's not just natural history museums, but art museums, history. And I think it's something about seeing language in the same space as the actual artifact, like the actual diorama or the actual piece of art, and then the words that describe it are there as well. Like every museum is in some ways a museum of words as well. So I think reading what people have to say about something that's in a museum, reading what it's called, um, tends to really ignite my imagination. 
So I try to write down what those phrases are that that trigger my imagination when I encounter them. That's usually fast enough that it's not disrupted to the people I'm with. Um, but yeah, I think if I were like not having to think about pacing and social convention, I would probably stand in front of them for a long time. <laughs> I mean, I'm also interested that we've been in this space, in this conversation of the museum and the diorama, but I know that you've just spent time on Christmas Island. And Stephanie, I don't know what your trajectory has been through your life. Like perhaps you've done a lot more traveling in addition to that. It seems like you have, at least recently. And so I know that you've gone snorkeling. I don't know if you've ever gone scuba diving. I have. Okay. So in having like experiences snorkeling and scuba diving, um, do you feel like you brought those experiences into poems like The Ocean in Miniature as well? Yes, to some extent. I think, yeah, my love of being in the water and being underwater is, I feel like, something I feel in my body and sometimes have tried to express through writing. Um, in some ways, I sort of feel like there's like one force that makes me both love being in the water and love writing about the water. And it's not like one thing influencing the other like my diving makes me write about the ocean I don't really know what that thing is though this mm. I think one thing I experienced while being in the water is a sense of being transported outside of myself and actually maybe being in the space of mystery and unknowing that we discussed earlier because in the ocean everything is new the way that your heart is working the way your body feels like physics like absolutely everything from a sensory perspective is different and so I find myself paying much more attention to all of those things and to exactly where I am and the sort of volume of my ego, I guess, kind of naturally has to turn down because I'm so busy taking in the world around me. Um, I don't think that has to happen in the water. I think that can happen in any number of ways. But that is something I'm really drawn to and something that I also feel when exposed to really beautiful language at a museum or when learning something new. So I think there's like a, a unifying force that mm. I need. Um, motivates me to do both. Do you feel like that that feeling of being in the water exists anywhere in this manuscript? I feel like it must. <laughs> yeah, I feel like returning to the village. I was just curious, just trying to locate that if it's here. In a way, I actually feel like the ocean in miniature talks about the sensation the most, and the mystery of the underwater world where no death is wasted and being like side by side next to a whale fall mm. um understanding things on a scale that's legible some of them are almost wishes for like impossible things and I think I've written other poems about the desire to sort of stay in that underwater world long enough to truly understand it which is ultimately impossible and I think that desire is a similar one to what's expressed in the ocean and nature yeah there is um a wateriness to recurring dream of escape. Yes, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it's there. Would you like to read it for our listeners? Yeah, I would. It's quite short. Recurring dream of escape. All at once, I am small beyond belief. I buy yogurt at the supermarket. Nothing else concerns me. Those who know my name here are only visiting or they work the registers and allow me to remind them vaguely of their daughters. On days it does not rain, I swim in the sea. I am, for once, nothing. 
smaller than nothing, beholden to no one, friendless, unmeasured, unwitnessed, and in this way, finally free. Yeah, that really reminds me of what you were just You're saying. You're so right. Yeah. <laughs> Don't know why I didn't think of it. Yeah, the this poem is different, so different from some of the language and ideas that we see throughout the rest of the manuscript, but like it's more explicit here, that wateriness, that yeah. fluidity, but it is definitely underlying, I think, in in every poem in the manuscript. Um so it's it is interesting to to see it just so boldly be watery in that mm-hmm. nature. It's interesting that there's like a speaker who's sort of declaring themselves and in such a specific physical mundane way. I'm I'm at the supermarket buying yogurt. And then by the end of this very very short poem, once that speaker steps into the sea, they begin to diminish. Um and sort of melt away and become free like that. I mean, that's that's really beautiful, and it does feel super unique among these poems. Yeah, I I think that sensation of, like, losing a sense of self and wanting that is actually exactly sort of the heart of this poem. Um, and mm-hmm. it is, for me, this poem is propelled by the fact that that isn't a sustainable state that you can't you can't always be swimming in the sea you can't always be unmeasured unwitnessed beholden to no one and that's why it's a recurring dream it's like always a little bit out of reach it's like a cyclical desire but um ultimately not something that isn't attainable or necessarily should be yeah I do love how this poem that dream of escape or that actual moment of escape that's lived however however it plays out it's just illustrating it in a way that allows me as a reader to really consider different philosophical ideas behind the implications of that, especially beyond this poem. It does a really great job of making certain things very clear, but at the same time sort of existing in the middle of this crisis. Um, I do really feel like there's an immersive quality to it that helps me as a reader to be automatically really invested because I feel like I once I step into this poem I live here too Mm. if that makes sense yeah that's that's such a beautiful reading of it yeah I think that's specifically with this collection and and even with recurring dream of escape something I thought about with the sequencing of the visual poems and the non-visual poems and how to bring Mm -hmm. in the more human elements the elements of the speakers like interiority and letting them coexist I feel like we could go on for another hour about interiority and the way that relates to the the exteriority of all these maps and these places and all of the stuff of the world that is in this book like that we have just now reached <laughs> reached that point is sad because I know we don't have too much longer but I feel like that's such a gorgeous relationship in this book and something that the reader really does need to experience for themselves. And to that end, Stephanie, I never get to ask all the questions I want to ask, but we do have at least one more, right, Anar? Yes. Um, A little tradition with our interviews for our Chapbook Prize winners. What would be the ideal setting for your readers to take in and experience your chapbook survived by 
I'm tempted to say one thing, but I will say another, or maybe I'll say both. I think somewhere outside, if possible, um, in whatever that looks like, if it's a loud fire escape or a rainy day in the suburbs, um, but because the chapbook is very much, it's roving through these very different physical places, like to be rooted in wherever your own physical place is and a, a, an environment that allows you to be extra attentive to that. Um, the my first answer I was tempted to say is like on the floor of the whale room in the American Museum of Natural History. It's like such a great place to chill. There's like a life-size model of a blue whale above you. You could just lay down there, read poetry, look at the dioramas, um, spend as long as you want. I think either would be wonderful. I love both of those. But yes, I'm glad you included the one that feels less attainable because we always love this to be like in an ideal world. Let's say you could curate the perfect reading experience for all of us and we could all pull it off somehow. Um, but that does feel attainable. And maybe someone, maybe someday we, Anar, will get to do that. Um, maybe they'll sell Survived by in the gift shop. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a dream. Oh, man. We'll, we'll send some emails. Yeah. We'll see what we can do. Wow, Stephanie, I always feel this way when we interview our authors, um, which is this like kind of like a feeling of grief that it's like, I wish that the depth of understanding and connection before the, the journey of editing the book, but you know, my therapist would be like, okay, you got to go through the process. It's like, we had to do the process of you know, not knowing each other at all and going on this really intimate and I know Claire and I can be intense, intense journey of making this book happen and bringing it to life. And it's like when we record the podcast, we really dig deep. And I'm like, oh, I would have loved to just savor this more. Um, but now we have a book and we can sit and curl up with your work and really experience it again and again. And I'm just so grateful, so excited that we're going to be celebrating Survived By a thousand times. <laughs> <laughs> At least three times um, in which our audience here can participate um, and join us. And so a little reminder, we will definitely be picking a virtual book launch date for the spring for all of our international and across states friends but if you're in austin definitely join us on february 23rd at alienated majesty if you're going to be at awp this already happened so it was good to see you <laughs> um is there anything else either of you would like to plug um i just wanted to say that stephanie i learned so much from you in editing this book. It was a true joy and I loved getting to nerd out about poetry with you, but also about creatures uh, and science, which I love. I, um, I really cherish all the time that we've gotten to spend on just making the book happen. I love the process and I also feel grief <laughs> when this when this time comes, but I'm really excited that we get to have so many fun book launches and see each other in, in real life soon. Oh, I feel so much 
I feel so grateful. I feel so honored to have my book published and treated with such care by both of you. I feel like, yeah, Anara and Claire, you're both right. It is super intimate to be to be connected to to both of you through my poetry. Like I feel like it is very intimate and it's it's been such a process. I've learned so much from both of you as well. Like thanks for all the love and care you put into my book. And I'm, I'm very excited to meet you both in person. Yay, thank you. And thank you, listeners. Get your copy of Survive By at hostpublications.com. Thank <laughs> you.